0: Olaf Carlson we founder and CEO of Polychain Capital, one of the true OGs in the digital investing space. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Olaf.
1: Yeah, Ash, it's great to be back and always enjoy these conversations.
0: So we're here to talk about what's going to be happening in 2022. You know, I was actually uh, just reviewing my notes before we got started here, uh, and I realized that many of the things that we're talking about here at the end of 2021 were things that you were talking about in 2017 way ahead of the curve on Web3 uh, and some of the new technologies that are out there that are just starting to catch on. Uh, Olaf, as you look ahead, where do you think we are right now and what do you see for the future?
1: Yeah, so um, 2021 to me is the beginning of the mainstreamization moment for cryptocurrency technologies. Uh, Before this year, it was still largely a relatively fringe group of people that were mostly um, computer scientists and investors, um, building, you know, for each other, but a little bit in a vacuum. Um, and an interesting thing about cryptocurrency is it, it's more of a movement, right, than it is, um, you know, this incrementalism of trying to solve an extremely concrete problem today. Um, and the result of that movement, you know, has been this incredible infrastructure and foundation. And we're finally starting to see, you know, mass market consumer use cases for people who don't care about cryptocurrency uh, beyond, you know, its usefulness for them. Um, And so this is, you know, the beginning of the next era to me, which is kind of onboarding the first billion people um, into this and um, really providing, you know, consumer facing applications that are mass market um, and extremely useful for people whether they be creators or consumers of, of content or financial services or whatever it might be. Um, and so it's it's a big moment in crypto um, and it feels like we've kind of finally come out of the fringe um, and into the mainstream. Well,
0: it was always a cool fringe and I was uh, it was fun to be there in the beginning, but it's even more fun now uh, to see how this is really beginning to blossom. You talk about some consumer services. Where do you think we are with that? What do you think will be the first to come online? What's going to be the first killer app of digital assets?
1: So I I think somewhat surprisingly for a lot of us that have been in this a long time, the first killer uh, product clearly is NFTs. Um, It's this idea of collectibles online uh, that could be digital art, digital photography, um, you know, owning a a soundtrack, owning a TV episode, you know, and the NFT world is only going to expand. So the types of assets that are represented as NFTs we're still in the early days, and that's going to continue to grow. Uh, but that really has been the breakout app that has caught the imaginations of of many people who maybe were less interested in um, inflation hedges or financial services or or payment technologies or things like that. Um, and this, you know, kind of NFT explosion, um, you know, it it is a more consumer friendly, relatively speaking, way to interact with these systems because. Um, once you wrap your head around the idea that there can be an authentic version of something in a digital environment, um, now that's something that is hard for a lot of people to wrap their head around. But once they sort of wrap their head around that, um, it's it's simple, right? Because you can look at an image or a song and, and feel like, yeah, I, I own the original version of this. And one of the remarkable things is that um, you know there's been this explosion in NFTs despite the fact that the onboarding experience and tooling available to people to interact with these systems is still, um, it's, it's like a prototype kind of system. So when you look at the steps and hoops you have to jump through to interact with NFTs, it's quite complicated. You have to sign up to some sort of cryptocurrency exchange, which is sort of like opening a bank account um, just for this particular service. Then you have to download uh, third-party software. So things like, say, MetaMask, um, you have to then purchase, you know, Ethereum or, or Solana or whatever cryptocurrency you, you need to interact with these NFTs, and then you have to go to, you know, a variety of kind of bespoke NFT marketplaces and make these purchases, stored on a uh, on a public private key pair, and um, it's still very hard. So the fact that we have the type of traction we have, given what the user experience looks like, is very exciting to me. Because solving a lot of those user experience problems, um, it, it's just coming. It's just going to get better and better and better. This is going to move away from desktop and towards mobile. Uh, key management systems are, are always improving and becoming more consumer friendly. And uh, that, that alone is a huge unlock. Uh, so today, the fact that we have the traction we have um, in, in DeFi and, and NFTs, despite you know what is ultimately a really poor UX for the average person, um it just shows how much pent up their demand there really is for these things,
0: yeah, extremely well said. It's like three minimal non-trivial hops to get involved in this ecosystem, and yet something about nfts have connected to people at a very emotional level uh, in a way that for example, yield farming didn't you mentioned uh I mean at scale, people who are not like nerdy on the space like we are who are not here every day looking at it. there's something about. Uh, this connection that they feel to the art and the music that has really just brought them out uh, and into the space. You mentioned a couple of points there, uh, the UI, UX issues, uh, the number of hops that it takes to get through key management. Give us a sense of how you think about where that is
1: going. Yep. so I think one of the really interesting side effects um, that I think in a sense was sort of unintended about the public-private key pair um, as sort of the core substrate of the way you interact with a lot of these systems is the login experience so we're used to a web where you put in an email and a password and your email is sort of this super admin access to every web application that you interact with um you can you know reset your password through that and you have this odd system of either the same password used for everything or like a password manager that manages you know, thousands of different um, passwords that, that you might have. And so it's all feels a bit hacked together when you really look at the way it all works today. Whereas with, um, say, an Ethereum key pair, you use that Ethereum um, public key to sort of log in to every single one of these services. And there's no going through email, there's no password. Um, and because of that, You know, you sort of log in once and then every single time you go back to that application, it knows you and remembers you. So there's like this very interesting UX improvement. Once you've gone through all of those hops, you're sort of pre-logged in to all of these services when, when you move to them. So these are the sorts of things that I think we need to really lean into when designing product experiences for average people in crypto. Um, you can actually improve the product experience in, in various ways once you've onboarded users. Um, you know, I, I do think that there's sort of two ways, though, to classify a cryptocurrency user. One is somebody who owns a crypto coin, and most of those coins are stored on um, centralized exchanges. So they're stored in a Binance, stored in a Coinbase, um, and you own the asset, you have rights to the asset, but you can't interact with on chain systems. So you can't really interact with, with DeFi, um, you can't interact with with NFTs, or any of the really cool other applications that are coming out. You know, People are calling these kind of Web3 applications, or sort of blockchain native applications. Most of the time to interact with those, you actually need to custody your own um, key pair in some manner. And so I do think that is going to be one of the foundational user experience challenges, um, is, is how do we make this mobile friendly? um, And how do we make recovery simple? Um, You know, you shouldn't just drop your phone in the bathtub and lose everything, right? It can't work like that. Um, So we need to sort of design key management services so that we can get more cryptocurrency users, not just being um, sort of investors through exchanges, but actually users of these Web3 applications, which requires them on some level to use either a hardware wallet, you know, Chrome extension wallet, or something that manages that public private key pair for them. Now, if we can onboard those users, and there's a lot of really cool ways you can use things like for example, the secure enclave inside the iPhone um, to do key management in, in sort of novel ways. And we have all these cool authentication mechanisms that we carry around without really thinking about it. Uh, like Face ID on our iPhones, um, you know, I, I do think that we can utilize a lot of the existing infrastructure out there on a, on a hardware level um, mm. to make it easier and easier and easier to interact with these Web3 native, you know, blockchain based applications. But that to me is going to be a big part of the the next two or three years in this story is how do we get more end users um, actually interacting with apps and not just um, investing in assets?
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, In a certain sense, having a MetaMask wallet uh, or another Ethereum wallet simplifies the proposition, but it also currently concentrates the risk uh, of losing uh, a private key. Uh, Talk a little bit, when you talk about secure enclaves uh, and uh, some of the hardware solutions that are out there, I know that there are people who are probably just hearing about this for the first time. Give us a sense of what that means, what the possibilities are there.
1: Yeah, so um, it basically means some sort of hardware device where a private key is generated on that hardware but not stored in any sort of cloud um, system so you can store a private key in your icloud or you can store a private key in a dropbox and this in a sense gives you a backup because you can reset access to that account one of the problems is that that third-party service provider now has access though to that private key and um, one of the odd things about, you know, the way private keys work is that if anyone were to gain unauthorized access, um, it's really very, very hard to figure out later how that access happened or who had that access, because you can basically take that private key and later, um, you know, spend those funds. You don't need to do it in real time while you're accessing that private key. Um, so this secure enclave, or for example, a YubiKey um, on, on a laptop, these allow you to make um, cryptographic signatures from a private key that is stored on the device and you're authentic- authenticating you know, by accessing that hardware. It's not a sort of cloud-based um, access system. And so I do think, you know, and ledgers are kind of the main way people interact with hardware wallets in the cryptocurrency space today. I think that um, sort of putting the ledger, in a sense, inside the iPhone um, is going to be an important design pattern. And there's a lot of cryptocurrency custodians like, for example, Anchorage that utilize that secure enclave technology a lot in order to build, you know, in that case, actually institutional custody, basically built on top of the iPhone um, infrastructure. So it's you know it's very safe, um, as in you know, Anchorage has billions and billions and billions of dollars of you know institutional crypto custody using that type of technology, and so I do think right now there's a big opportunity to um, bring that to the end consumer, um, and there's there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at the fringes to actually abstract away even that metamask layer. So, um, for example, in the Definity system, um, you can you know, interact with a DFINITY application, these kind of Web3 apps that are, are built on top of DFINITY, um, you know, with a key pair that's generated in that secure enclave without downloading any third-party software. So it 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 skips a bunch of steps, right? Um, and in DFINITY, you can load the application with um, gas or basically, you know, money to, to pay for user transactions. So the user doesn't always have to pay. Um, actually, the developer has the option to pay for users. And so it means that you can interact with apps in Definity um, without having to acquire the native ICP token um, and without having to download any third-party software like MetaMask. You can actually just click buttons on your phone and be interacting directly with an application in that system. And so that... Um, sort of design pattern, I think is um, very important. And, you know, it's it's very nascent, right? That was all created this year, basically. So um, I do think, you know, thinking about cryptocurrency users as these kind of two categories is critical. Um, and one is much larger than the other. So the number of users that are, um, you know, investing in crypto coins through exchanges um, you know, I don't have an exact number, but I, I think it's probably somewhere like 100 million people globally. Um, I think that there's only a, a small fraction of that that is interacting with DeFi apps, NFT apps, and other Web3 native applications that require you to interact directly with a key pair.
0: Yeah, you know, we're so fortunate here at Real Vision uh, to get to speak to some of the folks uh, that you're referring to. I just had a conversation with Nathan McCauley, who's the CEO of Anchorage, of course, uh, and Ralph. Uh, earlier this year, had a conversation with Dominic Williams uh, at Definity. You know, as, as we think about these questions, uh, some of it is, is hardware, some of it is software, some of it is also kind of just the, the social engineering component, understanding, uh, for example, how uh, custodians interact with multi-sig wallets, what the protocols and procedures in place are for that. Give us a little bit of a sense of how you think about all of these things, and also for people who may not be familiar with DFINITY, uh, tell us a little bit about that project.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think custody has been solved very well at the institutional level to me. Um, When I launched Polychain in 2016, I actually had to build our entire cold storage infrastructure um, myself. And you kind of had to do that if you were going to be a fund manager at that time. Um, we use that infrastructure for a couple years, actually, until qualified custodians like Coinbase and Anchorage started coming online, um, at which point, you know, for groups like Polychain, we can utilize those third-party custodians for all of our needs. Um, the, the problem is that that is a pretty bespoke onboarding process. Um, it's not going to be the same design pattern for your average consumer. But there's a lot of lessons um, in those architectures for how to... Right. Make something more consumer friendly and mobile friendly. Um, I do think, you know, just for example, shifting a lot of this off the desktop into mobile is going to be critical if we're going to onboard um, a billion people into Web three applications. You know, people just need to be able to click things on their phone. Um, they they can't feel like they have to open a bank account and download all of this kind of um, hard to understand software. Right where the, you know having the mental model for how the software works is sort of important today. Um this would be sort of like if driving a car required you to understand how engines work, right? Um, we've gotten cars to the point where you just sort of load it up with gas and turn the key and it's done. You don't really have to understand all of the ins and outs of the engine. Um, you know, and crypto has gotten better, right? It used to be like you have to build the engine yourself to have a car, right? Um, now you know it's abstracted a little um, but that abstraction of underlying complexity um, I, I do think it's going to be one of the really big unlocks and but the fact that we have the traction we have today with the UX that it it is um, it, it's it's a testament to how much demand there is for this um, then you asked you asked about Definity um, as a project so, um, one thing that gets me really excited about Definity is in the early days of Bitcoin, there were lots of attempts to build you know, what I would describe as a faster Bitcoin or a better Bitcoin in, in various different ways. And most of those projects were forks of Bitcoin that tweaked a few variables. Um, these are things like Litecoin or, or Feathercoin back in the day. Um, and they yeah. might alter a few parameters, right, right? like the mining hashing algorithm or the block times or block size or things like that. Um, but they weren't ultimately trying to um, enable new use cases that were outside the scope of what Bitcoin was doing, right? Ethereum, the reason Ethereum has been such a big project and so important for this whole area is that Ethereum basically embedded this programmability inside the blockchain. So people can you know embed arbitrarily complex software inside Ethereum and have it execute in that same highly secure manner that a Bitcoin transaction would execute. Um, That opened up, you know, this whole suite of applications that weren't possible before. I mean, the most simple one here is that Ethereum is a multi-asset blockchain, right? You have Ethereum, and then you have a bunch of other assets. You have things like stablecoins, ownership units of DAOs, um, you know, just, you know, NFTs, all all sorts of different things are built on top of Ethereum. Um, So... Over the past few years, there's been a lot of attempts at building sort of a faster, uh, better Ethereum, right? And a lot of these are compatible with the Ethereum Virtual Machine or EVM that interprets Solidity code. What this means is that you can basically take an Ethereum contract and copy paste it and deploy it onto the new chain. And so there's this, you know, great backwards compatibility. Um, and then oftentimes. These projects have faster consensus mechanisms. Um, and what that leads to is basically faster blocks, more scalable transaction throughput. A great example of a project like this is Avalanche, uh, which has seen pretty precipitous growth this year because of its EVM compatibility, a very easy to use bridge uh, between Ethereum and Avalanche. So you can move assets uh, from Ethereum to Avalanche very easily. And um, you know it, Avalanche has this kind of newer consensus mechanism and a proof of stake system so it's it's just sort of faster um, from day one and more scalable. Um, the thing about Definity is it's not really trying to build a faster ethereum um, the way that you know um, some of these other projects are. It, it's really trying to um, create a new paradigm where you can embed not just the sort of financial logic inside the blockchain, but actually much more expressive, um, web-like application logic. So as a simple example, um, storing things like text and images and video inside the blockchain. What this means is that you can have um, you know, this sort of uh, uh, highly resilient, highly secure web-like application experiences inside um, that is kind of executed in that same secure environment um, that Ethereum financial applications are executed in, and so one of the you know in, you know odd, oddities of the way that uh, DeFi has played out today is that um, all of the core financial logic of DeFi you know financial applications is embedded inside the Ethereum blockchain, but all of the web interfaces that people actually use to interact with those systems are still on proprietary servers. So, you know, you go to uniswap.org, the website, which is sort of owned and operated by Uniswap Labs and this the central server in order to interact with the um, DeFi protocol that's inside Ethereum. Um, in the Definity context, you know, you can still put that financial logic inside Definity, but you can also put the web application interface inside Definity. And so then you get all of the great benefits. Um, that you get with this sort of open source, programmable, um, forkable, um, you know, uh, um, type of type of infrastructure that you have with, you know, DeFi and, and NFTs, but you get that with more expressive web applications. And so people are building, you know, for example, chat applications inside Definity or image sharing applications, and they have the same properties of a lot of the DeFi and NFT applications. In Ethereum, but um, you know, it just allows you to express much more complicated logic. And the way Definity achieves that is by having much more rigid hardware requirements for node operators. So it, it's not um, to say there's zero trade-offs from the um, you know Ethereum infrastructure and, and sort of the Bitcoin design, um, but it's a very interesting trade-off in that once you accept that node operators have to have this more um, intense hardware requirements you can embed, you know, like full, um, expressive web application logic inside the Definity blockchain. Um, so that's, that's why I'm really excited about that project. And it, it just feels like um, working on the next thing um, yeah. and, and trying to really expand dramatically what blockchains are capable of, of doing, uh, rather than improving the performance or cost of existing applications.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. Definity is an interesting project to me as well. So for, for end users, we're talking about now this idea of being able to scale to the first billion users. What's the killer app? Why does it matter that web services are actually distributed on a blockchain rather than run on proprietary web servers? What's the end advantage to the customer?
1: Yeah, so um, I think one of the big big trends here stems from attention on the internet today. And the tension is between um, people who create content and the platforms that they use to both distribute and monetize that content. And so today, that distribution and the monetization is tied up in these big, siloed, centralized businesses. So for music, this is Spotify. For video, this is YouTube. For uh, photographs, this is Instagram. Um you know, and and for, um, you know, thought leadership, it's Twitter. Uh, so it's, it's kind of, you know, all of those creators are forced to go through these big centralized platforms. Um, and they often don't really like the platforms because it's kind of an adversarial relationship. They depend on the platforms for distribution and monetization, but the platform wants to extract as much as they can In that value chain between the the creator and the consumer of of the content. So, you know, you get a lot of loss in that, um, where basically the creator wants to go straight to the fans. Um, The fans want money to go straight to the creator, but there's this big siloed platform in the middle that's kind of breaking that market and also has pretty strong monopoly um, network effects. So, you know, like most of us don't use Spotify and five other applications to listen to music. We just sort of use Spotify. And um, that's because there's such powerful network effects around Spotify and that proprietary platform. So, this creates a big tension between on both distribution and monetization. One of the promises of a blockchain-based infrastructure is that there's less extraction and less sort of monopoly effect lock-in in that both distribution and monetization um, between you know creators and content consumers, creators and fans. And so it means that more of um, the the money basically that creators are earning goes directly in their pocket, less goes to this extractive middleman. Um, and there's less lock-in in that uh, distribution and monetization logic. Um, you know, like uh, YouTube or any of these ad-based platforms, they really want you to monetize in a very specific way, which is serving advertisements up to the end users. Um, if you start selling collectible NFTs, um, you're sort of going direct to consumer, right? You're kind of going around the platform and allowing fans to pay you directly and um, you know, giving something directly with, to the fans that's not mediated by the centralized platform. So in the long term, one of the very... Um, you know, disruptive things here is basically disintermediating all of those big um, internet platforms that lock in the creators and force the fans, you know, to pay a tax to the platform to interact with the the creators they like, whether they're artists or influencers or whatever they may be. And so um, that is, when people talk about Web3, that broadly is, I think, the core tension that is being sort of resolved potentially by a lot of this new infrastructure patterns, because everything's open source um, and there's no extractive middleman. Like the the blockchain protocol itself, you could sort of view as the the extractor here in that it is offering up the service and it does cost money, right? All of those various node operators um, that are validating transactions or validating software logic, they do need to get paid, but it's sort of a minimally extractive organizer. So, it allows for these arbitrary um, connections and and financial contracts between creators and consumers on the web, and it sort of takes the minimum viable tax, right, Um, in exchange for organizing that that contract.
0: I mean, that... Maybe the largest shift in commerce and business and finance that we have seen since the creation of the web, the idea that you're basically disintermediating these oligopolistic or quasi monopolistic platform providers uh, who sit in between the users and the content creators. Uh, and basically take a tax, uh, collect a rent in economic terms. Uh, It's really a fascinating concept. One of the reasons why I enjoy talking to you so much, Olaf, is that I believe you were involved in this technology long before it was called Web3. Uh, I can remember back in 2017 uh, when I was uh, still working at Coindesk, going into a conference room and talking to someone from Polychain Capital about Filecoin. And my brain was completely blown. I'd never heard of Filecoin before then. And I heard about this, and I was really struck by precisely the points you just made now, just how new and really sort of paradigm smashing this technology could be.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we're, we're just still in the early innings of that disintermediation. I mean, the the disintermediation in the financial world is well underway. So, um, you know, crypto, in short, has, to me, already succeeded in creating better money, um, better savings technology, call it, um, to store wealth. And it's also well on its way to creating um, better financial products. So, you know, the entire DeFi universe, um, it, it has exploded. I mean, You know, two years ago, the capital in these decentralized financial protocols was probably about half a billion dollars, and today it's about two hundred and fifty billion dollars. So it's grown by five hundred times in the last two years. Um, It's still small uh, relative to you know global um, global capital markets and the activity happening there, but the speed with which it's growing is incredible. And we're seeing this sort of capital formation um, in crypto that I think already rivals volumes in stock markets, like the the US IPO market and the capital that has been locked in DeFi are pretty comparable numbers, actually, Um, when you look at just the ability to coordinate capital over the internet, sort of permissionlessly using blockchains versus the Legacy pen and paper legal infrastructure um, to coordinate capital in the stock market. So um, the the financial disintermediation is well underway, and I think we'll see a similar thing play out with these web applications. The only reason we had to go after finance first is that these blockchains, you know, today especially like in a, in a pure Ethereum world, um, they really can only support financial logic. Um, so going after money first and then finance second has made a lot of sense, and that's why it's played out the way it has. But now that we have um, more scalable systems, more consumers onboarded, going after the consumer um, internet of you know marketplaces and any real application that relies on network effects, it's sort of the next logical step. Um, there's going to be a lot of challenges, and we're in the early days. It's kind of like talking about DeFi back in 2016, 17, right? Um, But that's it does feel like that's where we're headed over the next several years.
0: You know, Olaf, you're a very measured, even analytic guy. I want to just jump up and shout about what you're talking about here, this idea of really changing the entire way that commerce uh, and and business and interaction and media and content gets consumed. It's really hard to overstate uh, the vision that you're laying out that may, obviously highlighting may, uh, come uh, in the years to come.
1: Yeah, I mean it's um to me it does feel somewhat inevitable. Um it's just a matter of improving the technology, improving the product experiences. There is it, you know, but the the assuming you can solve those tech and product problems, um it's very clear to me that it's a better substrate on which to build basically the market economy of the world. Um so, you know, it does increasingly to me feel like you know crypto and everything happening here, it's basically a vortex. Like what used to be better money is is now better money and finance and is now better money, finance, and art collecting. And um it's like the, the universe of what um blockchains are tackling just continues to expand. Um I think beyond even what um You know, a lot of us ten years ago could have really imagined, Um, and it does feel like it's just never going to stop. Um, So, you know, to me, this is the you know I've said this before. I I think it's the largest kind of fastest generational wealth transfer you could ever imagine Um, because it it sort of pulls away the old logic of property ownership. Globally, and creates a new internet based um, logic of property ownership. And, um, you know, like getting in um, and, and becoming an owner in that new logic of, of property ownership that's native to the internet and not based on a um, kind of geographic or state apparatus, you know, it feels like at this point, even if you're skeptical, you have to hedge. Um, and as this starts happening, it's, it kind of never stops. It's just global. Um, it, it does. It feels like a vortex to me. It's like the genie's out of the bottle, and there's no putting it back in. Um, and in, you know, increasingly, crypto now, is, it's kind of a populist um, movement. And what I mean by that is that so many people um, own cryptocurrency and sort of believe in this, this new uh, logic and this, this new system that it's becoming, I think, increasingly hard to oppose it, sort of politically, um, and so it creates a a lot of, um, you know, it 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 means that this is getting more and more embedded in kind of mainstream society in a way that I think is irreversible. Um, you know, I think one of the thought experiments for me too is, you know, these these systems are owned by the public. That's the the other thing that I think is very interesting. So when you look at who owns Bitcoin? Who owns Ethereum? Um, who owns these DAO ownership units of uh, DeFi protocols, and who, who will own um, a lot of ownership units of these Web three applications? Um, it, it turns out it's kind of a mishmash of a bunch of people um, globally, right? So it's it's across geographic borders, it's across ages, it, it's not sort of limited to this. Slice of historically who captured value in the rise of the economy, right? The the rise of um, private companies, you know, it's really limited to private investors, Um, and you know, it's that's a relatively speaking small group of people. Uh, Whereas the rise in cryptocurrency and the wealth that's been generated through it, that wealth has been distributed to a much larger um, swath of people than the growth of like Uber. Or, or one of these more proprietary um, internet platforms. So, a thought experiment for me is: imagine what the tone of the conversations um, between, say, Facebook and Congress. Imagine what the tone of those conversations would be like if every Facebook owner, owner, sorry, every Facebook user owned shares of Facebook. Right. Um, I think it would be really a lot harder. Um, to go after the platform, right? Yeah. Because you kind of have this mass ownership of what becomes more like public infrastructure than a proprietary business model. Um, so it's, it's to me, there's a really amazing access. Um, it, it's not undoing um, capitalism or, or wealth inequality. It's more so giving everyone an equal shot in a way that the current system um I I think excludes, excludes people.
0: Yeah. You know, it's hard not to be excited about this. Obviously as a journalist, it's my job to be objective and analytic and to look through uh, the risks as well as the upside. But, you know, it's kind of like reporting uh, on the internet in 1998, you know, that doesn't mean that the value of, uh, you know, of, of, of Yahoo or the stock of the moment didn't go up or down. But when you look at the overall trajectory of it, it's hard to see that this technology is not going to become progressively More important, as you say, as a kind of public infrastructure. Now, of course, in full disclosure, uh, that doesn't mean that the price of this or that coin uh, won't go up or down at any given point. Indeed, we know uh, even with Bitcoin, we've seen, you know, 85 plus percent max drawdowns uh, a number of times uh, over the course of the uh, history of the protocol. But let's talk a little bit about some of those risks just to be balanced here. Uh, what worries you uh, as you look about at uh, the space? You talk about uh, the political risk. Uh, I would probably add to that the regulatory risk, which are sort of similar and related in that regulators are appointed uh, by politicians. Uh, what do you think of uh, as the regulatory risk facing the uh, space right now? Obviously, we just had a report come out. Uh, that was, I guess, it's fair to call it skeptical from the president's working group uh, about the current state of the stablecoin market. How do you think about the regulatory risk more broadly?
1: Yeah. So the the main thing I would I would say first is that this is a it's super global, right? Um, at you know the whole crypto landscape infrastructure, where these businesses are, where the users are, it's extremely globally distributed. So when you're looking at regulatory risk. It's a complicated global patchwork of, you know, dozens and dozens of different agencies at different governments in different places. Um, so it's it's not uh, limited to the United States. Um, and it it, you know, I I am, you know, was born in the U.S. and I hope that the economy um, surrounding crypto can can stay here and be built here. Um, what we've seen so far is. Um, you know, some things are here, but a lot is not here um, and, and has moved to uh, different sorts of jurisdictions. Part of this relates, to to the architecture of crypto. Because crypto is global and geographically agnostic, um, nobody really cares from a user perspective where Binance is um, located. So Binance you know, could be anywhere in the world and serve customers in any jurisdiction from that place. This is a little different than, you know, uh, a mom and pop business that's very, you know, it's based on a local geography. Um, And when you remove the need, even for banking, which a lot of these cryptocurrency startups, they don't even process dollars, they don't even necessarily need a bank account to operate. Um, You're you're looking at as an entrepreneur, the ability to start a cryptocurrency business from anywhere in the world. So um, while I do hope that we can um, have coherent um, regulation that, you know deals with what I would describe as you know bad actors, right. Um, so frauds, scams, thieves, whatever. Nobody wants that in crypto. Um, however, we do need to be very serious and measured about creating regulation that allows this economy to flourish because Silicon Valley is in America, right? But if we had clamped down on the internet too early, um, Silicon Valley would probably not be in America. It'd be in another country. Would that have stopped the internet from happening? Absolutely not. You know, the internet right. was was once the genie was out of the bottle. It was it was going to happen. The question is just like where is it based, you know, and where does the where where you know which country reaps the benefits? Um, and so I'm hopeful that um, U.S. regulators really understand the gravity of um, these decisions. And understand that if people like me are right, that this really is the technological megatrend of kind of a generation, that we need to be very cautious about, um, you know, treading lightly and making sure that the growth kind of can stay in America.
0: Yeah, let me ask one more devil's advocate question. Uh, there are those who will say uh, that the the decentralization. Uh, Is a myth, right? So there's a report out, I think today, from uh, BIS, the Bank of International Settlements, uh, saying that, you know, look, DeFi really isn't that decentralized. It's owned by a few whales. Cynics might even say, Olaf has been a very successful venture capitalist you would expect him to feel that way uh, about this give us a sense of how you really see this having potential to be decentralized in a way that benefits a broader group of people uh, rather than just uh, you know for example folks in the valley uh, accredited investors who had access uh, to these platforms early
1: yep so i'm a pragmatist about uh, decentralization like i view decentralization as a means to an end not as the goal in and of itself uh, the the end here is basically security properties. So, you know, with Bitcoin, people feel comfortable storing like a billion dollars of of wealth in Bitcoin um, because nobody can go shut down the network, right? Um, and so, decentralization is is you know a means to building a highly secure system, effectively. And in these DeFi protocols, um, you know, decentralization is Critical so that the underlying financial contract gets executed by the software and doesn't get tampered with. So, I can't loan somebody money through a DeFi smart contract and then say, hey, actually, um, I'm going to kind of renege on that offer and I want to take it back, Um, which you really can do in in private contracts. Then you have to go to a, a sort of court system based on that geography to enforce that contract. When you embed those contracts inside software, the goal is that it's self-executing and tamper-proof, so nobody can screw with it after the fact. And um, decentralization is the means to get that um, get that security right and get that that sense that it's going to work exactly the way it says it's going to work. Um, so um, there's been different levels of decentralization for different types of applications. You know, one of the things that I realized about the way Bitcoin was architected, and this was back when I was launching Polychain, so 2015, 2016, when I was thinking through a lot of these um, questions, was um, we don't need the same architecture for, um, you know, um, ownership over an image of a cat, you know, Um, and like the world's um, currency, right? So, You know, interestingly, the way Ethereum works today is I could, you know, have like a shield in a Web3 video game. And if I want to move that shield or like lend or sorry, borrow against that shield, use it as collateral and borrow or something, all of those um, transactions are validated in the exact same way that like a $1 billion transfer is validated. And so they share in that same security framework, despite the fact that the security needs for the billion-dollar transaction are obviously significantly higher than the needs for, um, you know, a lot of these consumer applications that maybe aren't, um, you know, the same kind of financial risk or, um, you know, don't need that same sort of protection. I think a reasonable metaphor is, you know, how do you store hundred dollars? You just kind of put it in your pocket, in your wallet. How might you store 10 grand? Well, you might put it in like a safe at your house. How do you store a million dollars? Well, you need to like go to a financial institution that has vaults and security protocols. Like you use different security parameters for different types of risk. And um, this is why you've seen an explosion um, in crypto of different platforms that make different trade offs from a sort of application expressivity um, and application scalability perspective. And a security perspective. So we don't need every single application like NFT application to have the same security properties as the internet gold, right? It can have different security properties and trade-offs. And that is, I think, one of the big reasons you've seen so many different platforms emerge. It's kind of experimentations with different levels of security versus performance. Um, and I think that's really healthy because it means application developers can go live on the place where they see fit, right? They can go build on the level of security that their users are going to need, um, relative to cost, right? Like if I want to send a billion dollars and the transaction fee is a hundred, I don't care, right? It's like, it just doesn't matter. Um, if I want to send a dollar and the transaction fee is a hundred dollars, obviously I can't, right? It doesn't make any sense. Right. So, um paying for different levels of security for different types of applications has always made a ton of sense to me.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating. And maybe I'm gonna argue against my cynicism about decentralization here. I think you're right when you talk about this idea of a next generation Facebook becoming a kind of public infrastructure where it's owned by the users. I think for a lot of people, the ENS, uh, Ethereum naming system came uh, with the coin drop, and you know suddenly you found a thousand dollars, eight thousand dollars or so, I think, at the time uh, of the uh, of the coin drop, which is a considerable amount of money, uh, you know, for me, and I think for people who are living uh, perhaps elsewhere in the world, where you know the uh, the daily average wage maybe a small fraction of that, a tiny fraction of that, it's an enormous amount of money.
1: Yeah, and these these airdrops are pretty amazing, right? It sort of shows. Um, it sort of shows users how much value they're providing to these network effects. Right. Um, you know, you you receive this these airdrops simply for being a user, right, and being a participant, and you realize how much value you're actually creating for everybody else in the system um, and kind of benefiting the system as a whole. Because things, you know, our entire um, – Financial economy and internet experience is based on this concept of network effects, where right. incrementally every new user actually adds value for all the existing users, um, and so you're basically getting paid for that now, um, instead of yeah. not getting paid and those benefits accruing to the centralized um, company that that sits behind it. And it's not um, erasing any of those effects effects at all. Um, you know, in a sense, these DAO ownership units. Um, you know there is kind of a set of owners in that DAO system um, that that believe in it and are trying to um, own it. This was to your to your point of uh, VCs in in crypto, and when you're you know becoming a, a user in that system, that this is, this is true of Bitcoin and Ethereum as well. You know you are sort of benefiting the existing um, owners of that system, but you're also just getting paid for it. Like more of your contribution is being distributed to you. Um, and you are becoming a partial owner that then has the option to continue to hold that um, and continue to gain in um, any future users that are coming onto the system. So, um, you know, I, I do think that um, regulatory pressure has made this kind of like open fundraise a less popular means of fundraising relative to um, private contracts from VCS. But I would actually love to see it go. <laughs> more the direction of open fundraisers, um, where sort of everybody in the world can contribute capital on and, and equal footing. I mean, if you're a professional investor, you can still um, do well in that environment, right? right. But you just, it, it's not based on legal limitations, the way that accredited investor laws are, right? Where if you're not accredited, you simply cannot get access. Um, and I think a lot of those laws are are somewhat antiquated and a bit unfair um, in the Kind of more modern information economy we live in, where everybody in crypto has access to all the same information. It's all open source projects, so you know th- it's it's like the first time in the world that um, you know all of these big investors and and VCs and everyone and like anonymous frogs on the internet have access to the same information, um, and they can kind of both participate in in this whole global economy on equal footing. So. I really like that. And I, I hope that as crypto continues to mature, the capital markets keep going uh, towards this direction of kind of open access, open source.
0: Yeah, it's, it is truly fascinating. Uh, you know, to talk a little bit more about Ethereum name service, I think it was the day of or the day after um, the, uh, the coin drop happened, I, I happened to be at a party. Um, with a, a room full of very sophisticated financial journalists. I mean, these are people who study markets very closely, who are incredibly read in. Uh, and they, they didn't believe me about what a coin drop was. They, they literally said, someone actually said, well, I'm sure they must have known that you were you know, a Real Vision uh, you know, host and they targeted you and that's why they gave you the coins. So I was like, guys, no, I, I registered my name because I thought it was cool, because I thought it was neat to not have a long string of alphanumeric characters, but rather to have us, my name, right, at dot ETH. I thought that was a cool idea. I mean, this is really like these paradigms are really something that are just radically different from anything that we've ever seen before. And, and I think you've, you've really honed in on the, the, the kid, critical point here, which is network effects. Talk a little bit about how you think about network effects and why they're so central to everything that's happening in this space right now.
1: Yep. So the really macro um, critical network effect to wrap your head around that's it's sort of at the it's the core pillar of um, the entire cryptocurrency landscape is that the idea that cryptocurrency can have value, right? To put it very simply, the you know in the early days it was the idea that Bitcoin is worth anything at all, right? right. And it's more of a socially agreed upon reality than it is. A technical reality where I can point to exact, precise reasons for it to be valuable. It's more of a, a social like movement to um, create value. But this is this is not dissimilar whatsoever to the way our property ownership mechanisms and you know dollar or fiat money mechanisms work today. Um, when you're born, you you own nothing. Right, and the entire world and all of the objects around you are owned by other people. So you're you're sort of born into this um, system that's a big social illusion, right? Like the idea that I can own an object or a house or a stock—it's all just this agreed-upon concept. Um, you know, you're sort of born into that um, concept and are expected to participate in it. In fact, you have to, right? Um, if you just started going into other people's houses, you're going to run into a lot of problems, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's because of this kind of legal enforcement framework um, and, and a shared social consensus. It's not because of any technical, you know, or like, I, I can't point to these um, reasons why. It's not like gravity. Let's put it that way, right? Gravity is like an innate characteristic of the universe. Property ownership is not. And so it's kind of just taking this old logic of um, what is value and how we define these social norms or, or social movements around value, and it's creating a new one. And it's kind of the ultimate network effect, right? Is this concept of property ownership and the ability to own things and who owns what, right? It's like the premise of the entire global economy, Um, and you know it kind of spans across every nation in the world now. um, Agrees upon this idea that you can own something, and um, if we kind of take that into an internet-native substrate, and um, you know replace um, those those traditional logics with a new system of um, blockchain-based assets. Um, that is, to me, the ultimate, ultimate network effect, and it's why there's this massive wealth redistribution that is, it's both looming and already happening, um, to people who effectively agree on that new social logic, early, um, it just earlier, right than than others. And when the whole thing um, is finished, um, we'll just have a completely new paradigm of of. What is value and what is property and what is money and who owns what? And so to me, like there is this core, core center network effect at the middle of crypto that is kind of the premise of all the other network effects that are more application centric or uh, blockchain specific or specific to a specific token or asset. Um, but the core idea that like Bitcoin has value is the center, center. Piece of it, and it's the powerful, powerful kind of um, red pill, so to speak. Like you know, you can be given these two choices, and um, it's it's kind of the it's but it's just fascinating to me because we've seen it work. Um, Like the number of users onboarded to this new paradigm, um, which is ultimately like a social movement, um, is it's it's growing faster than the users of the internet. Um, through the 90s, so it's pretty remarkable.
0: Olaf, it is so easy to go down the rabbit hole with you whenever you come on Real Vision. I could talk to you for another four hours, but let's deliver on the promise that we made to our viewers at the beginning of this conversation in terms of where we are for 2022. You've set the table with how you see uh, this space. Give us a sense of where we are on some of these points. Uh, Web3, the uh, using... Uh, physical hardware enclaves to see you securitize uh, these chains? Things like uh, mobile onboarding, where are we and where are we going to be in the next 12 months ahead?
1: Yeah. So, it being more narrow about the next 12 months, um, I think we're going to see continued growth in uh, DeFi applications. At this point, financial logic in blockchains, I would argue, is the cutting edge in all of finance. Like the most exotic things in all of finance are happening now in blockchains. So at the beginning, just three, four years ago, it was, could you build lending? You know, Could you build a trade? It was very, the most kind of basic substrates of finance. Now it is expanding into new types of finance that like doesn't exist in the legacy framework. So that is going to be super interesting to continue to watch. Um, I think capital coordination around DAOs, um, or decentralized organizations is going to continue to be um, very impressive and surprising um, so this group that you know was called Constitution Dow that um, raised over 40 million dollars in one week to bid on um, a copy of the US Constitution I think is it's just a fascinating um, capital and social coordination that's sort of um, you know using social media to Congregate thousands and thousands of people from on the internet to to embark on kind of a shared mission and actually coordinate capital and all get it done in one week. It's it's pretty mind-boggling to me and I think we're going to see more things like that uh, crop up. So I think experimentation around DAOs, DAO governance, um, and what DAOs are capable of um, is going to continue to expand quite a bit. Um, the world of NFTs. And the types of things that can be NFTs, I think, is going to expand a lot. Um, You're going to have interoperability across NFTs, I think, in interesting ways. So, like, you know, one thing I've thought of is, okay, we have this new NFT project, but to mint one, you need to have both a CryptoPunk and a BordApe. And you have to burn them both, and now you can mint this new one. Like, stuff like that, that's just, (laughs) like you know, weird interactions, um, between NFTs and, and, um, you know, NFTs for just more exotic things. I think the Overton window for what can be this sort of NFT is, is rapidly expanding, basically. Um, and then I, I think lastly, you're going to see the early, um, kind of prototype web three apps start to get, uh, traction. Um, and, you know, these are s- some projects out there today are, are, are things uh, like Audius say, um, but there's a lot that are launching right now or launching in the next year. And I think you're going to start to see the early traction on how are people using these decentralized marketplaces, decentralized uh, distribution um, systems, decentralized monetization systems. And um, we're going to learn a lot about where that space is going. And a lot of it will have to do with using the um, design patterns from video games, so um, it's kind of like combining Farmville with Bitcoin mining, um, you know. And people have called this, you know, play to earn. I think it's sort of a subcategory of what I've called network mining, which is sort of mine the um, ownership of the platform by participating in the platform, right? Um, and so those using those kind of video game mechanics to bootstrap um, these big platforms and distribute the ownership of the platform to millions of people. I think we're going to see radical things happen there as well.
0: Yeah, the whole nexus of gaming and blockchain could be an entire other hour long conversation. As we get to an end here uh, today, Olaf, what would you predict uh, would be something that might happen Uh, say, by December 31st, 2022, that might surprise us? Any surprises you might see coming in 2022?
1: You know, I I struggle to come up with a single one here because I just feel like the whole thing is going to be surprising. Um, (laughs) I just feel like every two months in crypto, it's unimaginable um, how much has happened since the prior two months. And how yeah. many new experiments are being run simultaneously on a global scale. Um, so I, I really struggle to point to a single thing, Ash, but I think that um, it's just going to be um, crazy. I mean, the, the main thing to, to always keep in mind is that, um, you know, crypto has moved so fast over the last 10 years, and I think it's actually accelerating. Like, the rate at which things are happening is growing. Not shrinking, yeah. and um, you know it, it's sort of like the unknown unknowns are going to keep happening. As in the the things you didn't, you know, know about, and you didn't even know you didn't know about, are going to keep happening. Um, and I, I think that we're going to just continue to see the unexpected. Um, and to me, the the null hypothesis is things come out of left field over and over and over and over right? Like it's easy to get trapped on where we are in reality and say, well, this is kind of where we're going to be. Uh, but if you look at the arc over the last 10 years, um, really, then the null hypothesis is rapid change and um, expansion and surprise. So that would be my, my one thing that I'm sure will happen.
0: We're just going to have to keep watching the space. Well, oh, I have such a pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ash. Uh, great to be back.
0: Thanks for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to Real Vision Crypto. For more great crypto content like this, head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.